I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. In Adolf Hitler's first speech as the German Fuhrer, he assured the nation that Nazi Germany would last a thousand years. He believed that Germany needed to return to its roots in that they traced back to the Holy Roman Empire, which inspired visions of agricultural virtue, uh, simplicity, community, and social harmony. This was, would have been something that the entire population was educated on. And so, in other words, it was an inspiring and an idealistic view of their future. Hitler often riled up his troops with references to the thousand-year Reich. And that, together with a, a cocktail of methamphetamines, mainly cocaine, uh, they endured tireless ground and air combat throughout World War II. And fortunately for the rest of the world, Hitler's reign only lasted 11 years. And although Hitler's reference to a thousand-year Reich is, is quite famous, it pales in comparison to this passage in Revelation um, in popularity. This reign of Jesus Christ and his saints in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, it's the, the only passage in all of Scripture that speaks of a millennial reign, of a thousand-year reign. And yet it's possibly been the subject of more books and articles than any other passage in Revelation. And that's probably because of the fact that it's all based on this one passage. And there's just many different views. But there really are three basic ways of understanding the millennium. Um, we've talked about them occasionally as we've worked our way through Revelation. But we are going to have to get technical here. Uh, just warning you now, this is a passage that requires some of that technical exegesis in order to make sense of it. But the first view, and probably the most prominent view in the evangelical church today, would be premillennialism. And it teaches that Christ returns and establishes his reign on earth. So the order is, is Christ returns, he establishes the millennial reign with himself and his saints, and then at the end of that millennial reign, there is the great, great white throne judgment. There's the final judgment. Now you could add a distinction within premillennialism between classic premill, which is old and an, and an established view um, from the second century, um, and then there's a dispensational premillennialism, which which is fairly new. Twentieth century um, is when it really began to take root, and um, but ultimately the basic view is that the millennium takes place after, or the millennial reign takes place after Christ returns. Post-millennialism is uh, the second view. The church enjoys a peace and a prosperity and an expansion at the end of this present stage, or this present age. Right? Uh, and then after that time, Christ returns. So for them, the millennial reign is going to happen in this age, but at the end of that age, at some really undefined point. And they're less concerned about the length of that time being literal, whereas premillennialists, 
pretty much say it's at a, it's a literal thousand years, and we'll talk about that later. Post-millennialists aren't so concerned about that. They think it could be symbolic of just a lengthy period of time, but it will happen at the end of this age so that the church begins to gradually have a, take greater and greater root in culture and, and have a, an expansion and, and an expanding influence. Uh, so for them, the millennial reign happens on earth after, uh, after which Christ returns and then he uh, establishes the, the judgment. One thing in the last view, which is amillennialism, this takes, though, a symbolic, uh, it takes the language as being symbolic of the present age between Christ's first and second coming. So it's not just reserved for the latter portion of this age. It, it covers the entire age. The millennial reign is happening in heaven, not on earth. It's a spiritual reign. It's a spiritual reality. And so that, uh, that will have, of course, some physical impact, but it's primarily Christ and his saints, those who have deceased in union with Christ, are then their soul uh, ascends to heaven, and they reign with Christ for uh, this entire present age. So the thousand years is clearly not literal because this present age, since Christ's resurrection and his, and his second coming hasn't happened yet, has already well exceeded 2,000 years. So um, this is not... So, so those are the three views. You have premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Okay, there are representatives of each one of these views I think even among us now, right, in, in this setting, um, certainly there, there's good Christian uh, fellowship among those who hold different opinions on this view. I believe this is a, a fairly minor point of doctrine in the big scheme of things, and it's perfectly okay to differ on this. Um, I think even our leadership differs on this approach or this eschatology. So all of us agree that Christ will return and have the victory at the end of this age. Every one of these views believes that. Um, and so it's not worth dividing the church over. I, I do want you to keep that in mind. Even as you listen and you may disagree or have more questions, I'm willing to, I'd love to talk to you about it. I am convinced of the view that I'm going to teach. Um, but hopefully it'll be edifying for all of us, regardless of whether you agree with everything I say or not. Okay, So let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for difficult passages like this, which we come across often in Revelation. Right, this is a, a challenging book to understand. And yet it's on the surface, it's, it's meant to give us strength and encouragement. It's meant to give your saints perseverance, and to, to encourage us uh, to face our trials in faith. And so, Lord, we pray that even this passage, as we reflect upon um, this truth that, that oftentimes does cause division and discord, would be something that would unite us and draw us together in a, in a hope and a confidence in Christ's victorious return. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. So read with me, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded in the te- for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not wor- uh, received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the millennium is about the victory of suffering saints. Those who have died with Christ will live with him. We learn that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. So it's the same idea in Paul's theology. Those who endure through a life of trials and temptations and by his spirit persevere, they will reign with Christ. That's a, a promise that's given to every saint. And so the, the summary of this passage is this. The death of believers brings us into a state of reigning with Christ from heaven. That's clearly aligned with an amillennial interpretation of this passage. The death of believers brings us into a state of reigning with Christ from heaven. But in order to to get to the reigning section, which is the latter part, we need to begin with the binding of Satan. So the first section, verses 1 through 3, is the binding of Satan. We start off here with this angel coming down from heaven. And that phrase, it marks this new phase in John's vision. Uh, We've seen it several times. This angel is seen with the key to the bottomless pit, and the angel also has a great chain with which he would bind the dragon, known as Satan, for a thousand years. Satan's then thrown into the pit where he's locked away, unable to deceive the nations any longer. And so this period of binding will end it says that he must be released for a little while. And at that time, what we read in verses 7 through 10 is that he'll gather, he'll begin to deceive the nations, which he's been bound from doing. He'll begin to deceive the nations and gather them together at Gog and Magog, which will mark the time of his final defeat. So everyone acknowledges that Satan is or will be bound. Uh, But the question is, when did he get bound, or when will he be bound, and to what extent is he bound? Premillennialism would teach that Christ will bind Satan upon his return so that he's utterly incapable of interfering with God's purposes during his millennial reign. Okay, so they tend to read Revelation in chronological order. And if you've been with us through this series, you know we haven't been reading it that way. Right? But, but they read it chronologically. And so since the previous chapter depicted the judgment that accompanies Christ, uh, that accompanies him at his return, the next vision must depict the next stage of history. Right? Christ has already returned, brought judgment, 
in, in that return, at least a partial judgment upon those alive. And then he sets up his millennial reign after binding Satan, casting him into the pit. Then at the end of that, he resurrects all those who have been slain, and they are then cast into hell. Right? So there's this final final judgment that takes place at the end of the millennial reign. That's sort of the order of the uh, premillennial argument. Okay, that's, that's just based on the chronology, primarily, or that's one of the arguments they make, is based on the chronology of the events that we've been reading. So there are several reasons to question that assumption. First of all, the word there, then, at the very beginning, verse 1, then I saw an angel, that can link a sequence of visions just as well as provide a historical sequence. It's not limited to a historical sequencing of events. It's not as if then, which is really the Greek word chi, which can also be translated and. It's, it's not as if it's only used for historical sequence. It's also used in Revelation, I think even most often, as a way of sequencing one vision to the next. And so it can have temporal reference, right, in terms of the timeline, but it also just links the time that, that John is having his vision. And so you see that whenever there's an angelic descent, as we read, the angel coming down from heaven, we saw it in chapter 7, verse 2, in chapter 10, verse 1, in 18, 1, and then here in 20, verse 1. So there's four different times. It's one of the key phrases that, that, that acknowledges this break in that historical sequence. It's a very clear break in the historical sequence when you look at the other references as well. So that's one, one reason I think it's, it's, it's a false assumption to assume that this is to be read chronologically. Uh, secondly, there's the, the final battle that's described in, at the end of chapter 19 has been repeatedly portrayed. That wasn't the first time we described the final battle. Right? We've read about it in chapter 16, verse 14 and 16. We read about the final battle in chapter 17, verse 14, and then again in 19, 11 through 21. And we'll see continually that as the judgment uh, takes place upon the enemies of God, they're, they're cast into the lake of fire. There's this, uh, this kind of recognition that the events are being described in a cyclical order, not a chronological order. Right? There's a thematic connection that, that he's trying to, to show in each one of these visions, that in time will be carried out in parallel fashion, right? because the same events are being described at various points in Revelation. So it's just the vision cycling back around to the beginning of this present age. Okay, so the final battle, uh, and it's, its frequent descriptions, its repeated and clear portrayal at several points in, in various passages in Revelation is just another example of the many parallels we've, we've pointed out throughout the book that, that, that show this is a cyclical structure. Lastly, and maybe most obviously, uh, in verse 3, it says that uh, Satan is thrown into a pit and shut and sealed so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Well, remember what we read. If we're reading this chronologically, well, last week in verse 15, we read this. From his mouth, speaking of the rider on the white horse, which is Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. 
Then at the end of that chapter, verse 21, we read, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So it might be difficult for the nations to be deceived if they've already been destroyed. Right? They've, they've already been defeated. If we're reading this chronologically, then what takes place here makes no sense. And so a lot of premillennials will, will describe or, or will say that these are people who weren't engaged in the battle, but this doesn't give you any impression that anyone was excluded from that battle. It said the rest of them were slain. Um, and, and so, or they'll say, well, maybe it's as believers enter into the millennial reign, they, become, they begin to have children, and some of those children don't remain faithful to the Lord. And so it's those unbelievers that are then being slain, which obviously is an intrusion into the text. You have no description of that at all in this passage. And so I don't think that's a, a, a good alternative view. Another feature that premillennialists focus on is a strict literal reading of the thousand years. Right? But the vision is filled with symbolism. Uh, are we to assume that Satan is a literal dragon who is literally bound by a chain and sealed in a literal pit? Uh, that would contradict other passages in Scripture which define him as a spiritual being. Right? In all of these details, they're symbolic. And so if that's the case, we should probably assume that the number 1,000 is also symbolic. And we have interpreted numbers symbolically throughout our study of Revelation, and so you can go back to previous passages to, to see that. And then finally, premillennialists typically understand the binding of Satan as a complete termination of Satan's activity on earth. And they say, because we still see evil and wickedness thriving, it's clear that he has not been bound yet. And that must be a future binding. They point to passages that speak of his present power, like 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, uh, Satan is the god of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Uh, Ephesians 2.2, 2, where he is the prince of the power of the air who continues to influence the sons of disobedience. Uh, 1 Peter 5.8, he continues to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Then they point to those verses and they say, it's clear Satan is still active. And so if this is true, of Satan now, then in what sense is he bound? Well, postmillennialists argue Satan will be bound for a lengthy period of time near the end of this present age, and so there's a little bit of give and take here on, uh, for the postmillennialists. They might say, well, he's not fully bound yet, but he will be, right? And so some of the evil uh, activity that we still see is because he's not, he's not been finally bound. Similarly, I, I think all millennialists argue that Satan was defeated and bound during Christ's first coming. Uh, this is clear from numerous passages. It was necessarily inaugurated during Jesus' ministry. In uh, Matthew 12, verses 28 through 29, um, we read that Jesus had to bind the strong man in order to plunder his house. And how could he enter into the strong man's house and plunder it if the, the strong man was not bound? Right? He's, he's clearly referring to Satan being bound so that he can then rescue his people from that bondage. Okay? 
when the 72 disciples returned from their successful evangelism tour, they rejoiced that they had power over demons. In Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, and Jesus responds to them with this. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Same language here that we find in Revelation 20. This idea of being uh, bound as a strong man and then falling, being cast down is found there in Luke 10. We have several other references specifically to the cross or the resurrection. Uh, The climax of this binding occurred on the cross. Satan was cast out while Jesus was lifted up from the earth. John 12 says in verses 31 through 33. And, and this lifting up, was not a, it's not a reference to his ascension. It's a, it's a reference to his death on the cross, that he would be lifted up on the cross. So Jesus disarmed the evil powers by triumphing over them on the cross. Paul says that in Colossians 2.15. In Hebrews 2.14, Jesus became flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So by his death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. And this is all consistent with an earlier vision that John had in Revelation chapter 12, where the dragon was thrown down to the earth and, uh, and clearly depicting a, a, a time right uh, during Jesus's ministry, right? Because just prior to the throwing down of the dragon, you have the woman giving birth to the son that the dragon's trying to devour. And that's a clear reference to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. So clearly there is a sense in which Satan has already been defeated and that his power has been limited. But according to the other passages, he does still have some activity. He does still have some strength. Um, And so our passage defines specifically the kind of limitations that he has. It's in verse 3. It gives us this purpose clause, right? So that... He was thrown into the pit. It was shut and sealed so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. That's a purpose. Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. He is unable to carry out what we read in verses 7 through 10 where he, where he is released and immediately begins to deceive. Notice in verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And they'll gather together at Gog and Magog. So this is, this is all um, a consistent reading. Right? And Satan is bound from deceiving the nations and gathering them together at Gog and Magog for that final battle. And Greg Bill points out the language there of sealing, that he was sealed, it was sealed shut over him, uh, is is also, uh, you know, we've we've seen that language before of God's seal of believers. So Greg Bill says this, God's seal on Christians does not protect them in every sense, but only in a spiritual salvific manner, since they suffer from persecution in various physical ways. And so conversely, God's seal on Satan prevents him from harming the salvific security of the true church, though he can harm it physically. And he continues to do so throughout this age. So in order for Satan to be bound and cast into the pit, Jesus had to be nailed to a cross and buried in a tomb. It was the death of Christ that ensured the binding 
of Satan. And it is the binding of Satan that secured the redemption of all the elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we could point to the work of any number of missionaries who have taken the the light of the gospel into the darkness of an unreached nation as the fulfillment of this verse, right? Because Satan has been prevented from deceiving the nations, we can have confidence in the success of our missionary activity. And so we should be involved in that activity to one degree or another. Whether we are going, whether we are senders, whether we are supporters, whether we are prayer warriors, we should be doing something for that missionary activity. That is what we are called to, right? That is what the Great Commission, uh, Jesus gave us the Great Commission Uh, to fulfill so we can know that god's word will indeed reach every nation so regardless of your millennial view revelation conveys the decisive defeat of satan and this ought to leave all of us with confident uh, with confidence in christ's victory at the end of this age so the binding of satan then makes possible the reigning of the saints in verses four through six and we won't take as much time in this section, um, but the question here is when do they reign or when does that reign begin? So premillennialism, again, Christ will bind Satan upon his return so that he and his saints might expect a golden age of reigning on earth before he is released and then finally defeated at the end of the millennium. Then the final judgment takes place. So the problem with this view is that it requires two separate physical resurrections. You have the resurrection of believers before the millennium so that they enter into that millennial reign with Christ. And then you also have a resurrection later on at the end of that millennium of unbelievers who are then sent into judgment, their final judgment. That separation of a physical resurrection is not found anywhere else in Scripture. And so uh, everywhere else, it speaks of one general resurrection of all both believers and unbelievers who then enter into judgment immediately. Okay, so, so that's one problem. And you can, you can, there are several passages I could point you to that speak of a general resurrection of all people. It also means that the millennial reign creates this gap between the return of Christ and his final judgment, which is also unparalleled in Scripture. Anywhere else you find the idea of Christ's return, it's associated with his judgment. They're combined ideas, and so this creates this thousand-year gap between them. Postmillennialists say that Satan, while Satan is bound, the church will experience increasing levels of peace and prosperity prior to his return. And so the problem with this view is that it means we are nowhere near the return of Christ. Right? Because nothing like a golden age for the church has or is taking place on a global level. And history tends to be out of accord with that interpretation. Um, more importantly, I don't believe it does justice to the whole counsel of God's word on the subject of Christ's return. Um, so amillennialism sa- says that the souls of deceased believers are presently reigning with Christ in heaven. There are Uh, no earthly expectations for a physical golden age until we enter into the new heavens and the new earth, that final glorious picture that we'll have in the last chapter of um, the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Actually, it's presented in chapter 21, the next chapter. 
So that's, that's sort of all millennials' view, right? The, John sees saints on thrones, and some of these saints were made up of the souls who had been beheaded. And we saw them earlier in chapter 6, verse 9. They were, they were seen crying out to God in prayer under the altar, how long, O Lord, until you vindicate us? These are the souls of those who had been beheaded. These are combined with the saints who had not worshipped the beast or received his mark. It's, it's in conjunction with those who were martyred. Right? All of these saints experienced the beast persecution, but not all of them were martyred. This isn't just uh, like only the martyrs are going to reign with Christ. This is all believers who endure to the end will reign with Christ. And so the martyred church here, though, is used as a representation of the church triumphant. Right? It's, it's made up of martyrs and faithful witnesses who endure to the end. Okay, so John sees these saints come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. They are partakers of Christ's resurrection life, as he promised in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. So believers, they participate in the first resurrection when they die and their souls are immediately with the Lord. Right? They will reign with Christ in that intermediate state until they return with Christ in judgment. In the meantime, they enjoy priestly privileges of immediate access to the presence of God. All right, so that's, that's how we understand this language of the first resurrection. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection of the soul of saints who are then in the immediate presence of God after their death. Right, the rest of the dead, it says in verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And that must refer then to unbelievers who have no part in the first resurrection. And therefore, they do not reign with Christ, nor will they be protected from the second death. On the other hand, believers will receive the crown of life and remain unharmed by the second death, as Jesus promised in Revelation 2, verses 10 and 11. So one commentator, Clements, says this, they who are the Lord's rise twice and die but once. They who are not the Lord's rise but once and die twice. That's what this passage is speaking of. There's a, a physical death of the believers and a spiritual resurrection of their soul that comes to be in conscious dwelling with Christ in heaven. And then uh, upon his return and the and the resurrection of their bodies, they are then united with their glorified body and will reign with them for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. And that's, that's how I understand this passage in conjunction with the host of other passages that we've considered. And I, I wish I had a little more time to, to clarify all of that. I'm sure uh, it's a little muddled for you, but, but um, please feel free to come and talk to me afterwards. I want to conclude, though, with, with this idea of and just the, the reigning, the hope that we should have of reigning for all eternity with Christ. Um, referencing some of the things that were said about Hitler. Uh, pastors in Germany said this, um, the time is fulfilled for the German people of Hitler. It is because of Hitler that Christ, God the helper and redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler 
is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter into the Church of Christ. And that was uh, German pastor Hermann Gruner. Another pastor put it more succinctly, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. Hitler encouraged his, his propagandists to promote this kind of idolatrous worship alongside their worship of Christ. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was among the confessing church, right, which publicly denounced Hitler's propaganda in their Barman Declaration. You can read it in, uh, from 1934. But as the intensity of persecution increased for anyone in opposition to Nazi Germany, many pastors were scared into silence, even those who were initially opposed to him. But Bonhoeffer decided to join the German Secret Service as, and to serve as a double agent. And so he went to, uh, he continued to, to be a, do missionary work as a pastor, but he would go to uh, conferences and under the, the guise of a, being a spy for the Germans, he in fact was using his time there to help Jews escape from the oppression. And so when it was discovered that he was rescuing Jews as well as he was peripherally involved in various assassin, assassination plots against Hitler. He was imprisoned, and for two years he, he spent time in prison, and then he was transitioned to uh, another concentration camp, and, and he was hung just one month before Germany's surrender. And a camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's hanging said, in the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. And he was, he was confident. He did not retreat uh, from his love and honor of, for Christ alone. And so because of Christ's resurrection, we know that when we die, we have a place prepared for us. Uh, we have a heavenly father who runs to meet us. We have a savior who gladly shares his inheritance with us. And so we can face death with confidence, knowing that our earthly suffering will be replaced with heavenly glory. All, right, all of Satan's efforts to destroy the church ultimately serve to strengthen her spiritual reign throughout this present age. This passage assures us that the number of saints reigning from heaven will continue to grow until the appointed time of Christ's return. And so even where Satan is his strongest at putting to death believers, he's actually strengthening the church triumphant. Both the binding of Satan and the reigning of the saints are benefits that believers receive because we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And so we do not place ourselves in a position of defeating Satan, feeling like it's, it's our responsibility to do that. We would crumble under his power. But he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And because he who is in us is the spirit of him who defeated our accuser, we know that we will take our seat on heavenly thrones when we die. Right, so let us declare that message with confidence that the eyes of many who have been blinded by the God of this world will be opened by the Savior who defeated him. And so let's look to him to apply that truth to our hearts even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel and the truth of the gospel that we find here, even in the, 
this passage of the thousand-year reign. Lord, I, I know it's a, a technical passage and, and confusing at points, but Lord, in the end, it is, it is meant to strengthen us, to encourage our faith, to give us confident hope in the resurrection life that awaits. And Lord, that is experienced and enjoyed, enjoyed in one sense immediately after our death, where our soul is immediately in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Lord, when we reign with him from heaven, we thank you for that privilege and we look forward as well to the resurrection at your return where we will be brought into the glorious new heavens and new earth. Lord, we look forward to that and the reign that awaits for all eternity with our Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to worship you in response with gratitude as we lift our hearts to you. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.